James says that your faith in Christ should be evident in what you do and in what you say and in how you think and in what you love, as we will see in chapter 4. And I think we've seen this admonition live up to your faith very clearly in every single section of the book of James. James has told us that if we are living up to our faith, we will embrace our trials joyfully and receive God's work meekly and practice our religion purely and love one another impartially and bridle our tongues diligently and live with one another peaceably and so forth. And this morning, we will begin to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 4 under the title, Devote Yourself to God Submissively. Devote Yourself to God Submissively. So let's ask God to give us grace as we examine this text this morning and submit to what God is teaching us. Father, again, we just bow to ask you to do your work that you alone can do in our hearts as we consider your word and as we yield to it. Father, we can hear and understand and acknowledge and make sense of the text, and sometimes we get very excited about what we're seeing, and uh, we can uh, explain it very well. And, and Father, all of those are, are wonderful things, but, but Lord, if we are not saying yes to you with our lives, if we are not bending in the way you're pointing us. Father, that is the ministry of the Spirit that is absent. And I pray that he would have full course to minister to my heart, to minister to all of our hearts as we examine this text. And I pray that you would be glorified and that your word would be proclaimed and that your people would be encouraged and that you would be lifted up, Father, because we ask you for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in order to begin James 4, we need to look back for a few minutes at the last section that we went through in James chapter 3. So if we can go back to chapter 3, uh, verse 13, James asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? In other words, who is the religious expert? Who is the wisdom bearer? Who is the religious specialist? the one who can tell you how to live and follow God. I mean, all these Jewish believers grew up with this kind of thing. If they were living in Jerusalem and scattered from there, especially, they grew up listening to the ministries of the scribes and Pharisees. But the scribes and Pharisees were harsh with the people, demanding that they follow the law and their traditions with perfection, and they showed little mercy to people, especially those who would not comply. That's why Jesus ran into conflict with them. They cared more about their religious rules than they cared about people. And that's not the way Jesus ran. They showed high regard for the law, but little love for people. Uh, I was reading Luke 13 this week. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he looks over and there's this woman who has scoliosis so bad, she's, she's bent almost double. And she'd been in that condition, Luke 13 tells us, for 18 years. And Jesus calls her over and and heals her. And everyone is rejoicing except for the religious specialist in the crowd, the ruler of the synagogue. He's angry because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. And this religious leader takes 
the teaching moment to lecture the crowd. And he literally says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed. I mean, how could he fail to show compassion for this woman and at least not rejoice with her that she's been healed so miraculously? So Jesus calls him out. He says, you hypocrite, you set your ox and your donkey free on the Sabbath to get a drink, and you would deny this poor woman the opportunity to be set free from the shackles of Satan that have bound her for 18 years, and he's put to shame. But this is what can happen when we are rightly concerned about practicing righteousness and rightly concerned about others practicing righteousness. But we are not equally concerned about loving people. So James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who's the wisdom bearer? How, how would you know? Well, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That is the key phrase. I think that unlocks the whole text through the rest of the chapter. And we saw this as we studied this portion of James. It's a meekness produced by wisdom. Wisdom doesn't make you arrogant and self-righteousness and mean-spirited. Not wisdom from above, wisdom from God. Earthly human wisdom may make you hard to deal with, but that's not the way uh, wisdom from above works. Wisdom from above makes you humble, meek, amiable, compassionate, loving. And we saw this demonstrated in the book of Proverbs. I was tempted to give you a bunch of Proverbs again this morning, but I'm not going to for time's sake. But if, if, you, if you follow the wisdom of God in Proverbs, it will cause you to be zealous for righteousness and meek at the same time. Humble, compassionate for other people. You won't use righteousness to divide people. You'll use it to heal and unite people. James says, this is the one with true wisdom the one who is meek. But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, the truth that you're not wisdom, you're not wise at all. You don't have wisdom at all. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic with reference to its source. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's where wisdom from below leads you. But the wisdom from above is first pure. In other words, it's good. It's righteous. It's obedient. We never compromise what is right for the sake of unity. It's first pure. And then he gives this litany of qualities. It's then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, and, and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You, you really want righteousness to flourish? Is that really your goal? You, you want to see God's righteousness in the earth? Then follow God with all your heart. And love others in the body of Christ with all your heart. Do you do your part to be merciful and sincere and to be a peacemaker? This kind of living sows the seeds for a veritable harvest of righteousness, both in your life and in the life of others. 
So James asks, who is a wise man? Who is understanding among you? And the answer is, those who practice wisdom from above that leads to meekness, humility, peacemaking, gentleness, abundant mercy, and genuine compassion. But James doesn't know we're going to chop his book up into five chapters, his letter into five chapters, right? So he keeps going into chapter four. This is the same discussion. He asks another question. What causes then quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what if there is no peace? What if people in the congregation follow wisdom from below, not making peace but making strife and division? What causes that? James answers, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, which is actually just one word in the Greek language, adulteresses. That's what he says. It's very emphatic adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I know you don't know what that means. I'm not really sure either yet, but I'm going to figure it out before next week. Um, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, yet let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Okay, so what you see here in verses 7 through 10 is the solution to the problem that James begins to describe in verse 1. Notice this cluster of action verbs here in 7 through 10, beginning with submit, followed by resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and finally, humble yourselves. And I want you to notice that the framing of this, this, this group of action words. He begins with submit yourselves, and he ends with a similar admonishment, humble yourselves. This looks very much like meekness. This is the way back from a life that is unfaithful in its devotion to God and to the people of God. Now, compare these wise commands that will put us back on the right path with the huge problem that, Jim, uh, that, that James begins to explain in, in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You notice here he speaks of quarrels and fights and passions and war desire, murder, coveting, and so forth. Now, what is going on here? I, some of you have said, you know, I, I've seen some churches that, where people are kind of unfriendly, but I've never seen a church described this bad. Was this really going on? How could believers have come to a place where they are behaving in such a terrible, 
sinful way. What you're seeing here is nothing other than a deviant devotion. To deviate means to go off the path, especially in an immoral way. This terrible, sinful picture described in these verses is a deviation from the path of wisdom that James describes earlier. And at the heart of this wrong path is a deviant devotion, an inordinate affection, a misplaced adoration, a passion for the wrong thing, a wrong love, a bad love. This summer... As always, there were several weddings that took place. In fact, Derek and Jamie are back with us. They were united in matrimony a couple of weeks ago. And of course, uh, Sean and Raquel have been with us uh, for much of the summer. And some of you who have been pastors and in other ministry positions, you've had the privilege of officiating a wedding. That's a unique honor, especially with a young couple with their whole lives ahead of them, by God's grace, who love the Lord and they love each other. And when you officiate a wedding, you, you lead this couple in some of the most sacred words they will ever speak. And they stand and declare before God and before all who are present that they will be faithful to one another alone as long as they both shall live. And then they repeat the following words. In God's perfect will and in the presence of these witnesses, I take you to be my husband or my wife. And I promise to be faithful to you from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge to you my faithfulness. They're pledging their lifelong devotion to each other and to each other alone. And from that moment forward, their lives are defined in a significant way by how well they remain devoted to each other and to the covenant they have made to each other. Likewise, when you come to faith in Christ for salvation, you are also devoting yourself first to God and second to the people of God, the church. Believers are called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, be, and by, by extension, we are to be devoted to the members of their new family, of our new family, which are comprised of all the others who are devoted to God. And the local church is where we live this out. But what we are seeing depicted in these opening verses is none other than a deviant devotion, an unfaithful devotion, a devotion that has fixated on an alien desire. A believer who has given his heart or her heart away to another, destroying the relationship that he or she was once committed to. Why else do you think that James says you're committing spiritual adultery? So in these 10 verses, James tells us how to come back from a deviant devotion that was brought about by following the wisdom from below in verses 13 through 18. A deviant devotion that leads us to, com 
completely live opposite from the way a believer should live, from the way a believer should walk. And here's how this passage flows. In verses 1 through 3, which we'll consider this morning, we find the problem of a deviant devotion. What causes a deviant devotion? Where does it lead? What does it look like? And next week, Lord willing, we'll look more closely at the travesty of a deviant devotion. This is a section where James begins, you adulteresses. He calls us unfaithful wives if we live like verses 1 through 3 because we're, we're, we're being unfaithful to our covenant, our commitment. We're not living the life of the devoted wife, as it were. And this is the essence of the problem. And then finally, we'll examine the last section, verses 5 through 10, the healing of a deviant devotion. How do we come back to full devotion to God, which is fleshed out in our life, especially with the way we live with one another? So let's give our attention for our remaining time this morning to verses 1 through 3 which explain for us the problem of a deviant devotion. Now, it's a foundational principle in our walk with God that I hope you all understand that if we are not in union with God, neither are we in union with other people as well. We see this all the way back to the first sin in the garden, how it broke human relationship as well as relationship with God. If our relationship with God is not right, we will see issues come up in our relationship with others especially believers. So we're not surprised that when James talks about the problem of a deviant devotion, he first says that a deviant devotion assaults our relationship with others. And we see this in verse 1 through the middle of verse 2 in a section of James that seems so violent. We wonder what he can possibly mean by this. He accuses these believers of quarreling and fighting and even murder. But before we unpack the violence that is portrayed here, let's let's go right to the heart of the issue. Because in verse 1, James states in simple terms what causes all of this. In answering his own question, he says that quarrels and fights among God's people are caused by your passions that are at war within you. The word passions is not just a normal word for desire. It's the word hedone, which comes from, or from which the the philosophy of hedonism, we call it hedonism, comes from. The word passion then refers to something that brings us pleasure, and in context, it's a pleasure that is not within the will of God. It's bad pleasure, a deviant devotion. It's the urge to satisfy our flesh with sinful thoughts or actions. The urge to indulge in the sins of the world or the habits or vices of the world. Or or maybe we're not even committing obvious sins, but we're finding our satisfaction with things like rich foods and expensive clothes and activities and toys and games. And we are lying if we say God is our greatest desire because we found something that's actually less desirable, less beautiful, as we've heard this morning, to take his place. The word hedonai is always used in a negative sense in the New Testament. Jesus uses the word when he warns of the riches and pleasures of this life that choke out the spiritual growth of those who initially embrace the gospel. And when Titus describes the life of a flagrant unbeliever, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, there's the word, passing our days in malice and envy, hated uh, by others and hating one another. That's a very similar description to what we see here in the opening of James 4, isn't it? In fact, James goes on to say, in essence, you're living like an unbeliever. Like the non-Christian in the world, he says down in verse 4, that mere friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, when we behave like this, we are not living up to our faith. But there's one significant difference between an unbeliever living out his or her passions like this and a believer living this way. And by the grace of God, there's a difference between an unbeliever living it out, as Titus 3 says, and we who may live this way in our lives. Unbelievers, as Titus says here, are slaves to these hedonistic passions. They have to sin. But the believer is set free from them. We don't have to live this way. That is why James says there's a war going on. He says that your passions are at war within you. If if you're concerned about sin, even though you're beating yourself up that you fell again, the fact that you're beating yourself up may be very good evidence that that the, the Holy Spirit is working on you and leading you back to wholeness with God. It's James' way here of describing this battle that goes on within our soul when our mind and flesh desire to sin or to exalt a love above our love for God. And we know it's wrong. We know it's sin for us. But we want so badly to experience or manipulate people to get what we want to enjoy some pleasure or some pride of accomplishment. I don't know what it is for you. Our our sins can be very personal, but this war can rage within us. And when we love what we want more than what God wants, then we are willing to assault our relationships with other people, using them or getting around them, sometimes going through them, to get what we really desire. James says in verse 2 that you desire and you do not have. He's likely referring to the fact that you desire even though you are quarreling or fighting for it. And the word quarrel means going into battle, physical conflict. Well, the second word, fight, can refer to physical battle but can also be a war with words. And after all of that, since you still don't have what you want, James says you murder now, I need to say here, I, I think I've looked at this back and forth a couple of different ways. I, most commentators agree. James is likely speaking metaphorically here when he mentions murder. In fact, the, the whole rank picture he's showing is, is, is spelling out for us, this is how bad it can get, but also this is what our sin looks like from the mind of God. And I think that he's using murder metaphorically because Uh, if the violence had gone so far that some of the community of faith had actually murdered a brother or sister in Christ, I think James would be writing an entirely different kind of letter here, okay? Uh, This is probably not what's actually going on, but I think James is speaking of murder the same way, for instance, that Jesus speaks of it in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what Jesus says? He says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And this is the, the, the sinful anger, the, the, the spiteful anger like, like James is describing in James 4. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You might think that's a pretty steep penalty for insulting someone. But Jesus is making the point that when the commandment says you shall not murder, it is saying you will not violate the covenant with your brother or sister where, where you promised as a member of this covenant community to seek their good. That is not how a true believer behaves. In the same way, this description from James can seem a little over the top. I mean, who would behave this way? Well, as some of you might know, there are churches that have had knock-down, drag-out fights over things. It's sad, but true. Some of you have maybe, maybe have been in congregations and witnessed this. And there are extreme examples, actually, you can Google this, not during the sermon, uh, but when, when, I mean, you can find examples of church members actually killing other church members. That's a pretty extreme case, though. But as we've seen before, this is what James does in the letter, right? He tries to help us understand what our sin looks like to God. You think too lightly of your unkindness to your brother and sister. You think too lightly of how you manipulated others to get your way. We think too lightly of how we ignore our brother or sister's needs because frankly, we just don't care that much. We think too lightly of how we may have raged or criticized a fellow believer behind his back or behind her back and so forth. So yes, it would be terrible to have active fighting between church members, but just because the fighting is not active does not allow us to excuse the ways in which we are not being devoted to one another or rather devoted to our desires more than to one another. He also says, you covet and can't obtain, which seems a little anticlimactic after mentioning murder, right? Okay, you murdered people. And by the way, you covet too. But again, coveting may not sound bad, but the word refers to this intense zeal or passion for our way, our own desires. That's why he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you were irrational about getting it? And in the end, it did not matter who you hurt or what you had to sacrifice. You were going to get that thing. You were going to achieve that goal. Or maybe you've known somebody like this. It's the reason when we get angry, that's the time we say things that later we regret. I never should have said that. Or we come back to somebody and say, you know I didn't really mean that. Because in the heat of the moment, blinded by our passion, we don't care anymore who we hurt, or how we look in front of others. We lose control. And James says, what causes this to happen? And the answer is a deviant devotion. That's what coveting is, a deviant devotion. We, we crave something. We think it's right and good. And sometimes we justify it. Sometimes we justify it biblically. Sometimes it may be a good thing. But we want it so bad that we're willing to assault our relationships with other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. To get it. And James is saying, this is not good. This is not wisdom from above. 
the 17th century Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza, one of the most influential thinkers of the Enlightenment and a harsh, harsh critic of Christianity, said famously, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men. By the way, the world knows this is what we profess. They might not want Christ. They might not want to ever come to church, but they know this is what we're supposed to be like. And they know when we're not that way. He says that they profess love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, but yet they should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the primary evidence of their faith. Uh, of their faith. And what an irony that an unbelieving Jewish philosopher should call out the church for not living up to its faith. But this is exactly what we look like, even to the world, when we are not devoted to one another as the family of God through the person of Jesus Christ. But a deviant devotion has even greater consequences than this, because not only does it assault our relationship with others, but worse, it assaults our relationship with God. And James continues in the middle of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And yes, he's talking about prayer. James says, you want something, but you haven't asked God for it. You haven't prayed for it. Aren't we rebuked by that often? We have a need, we fret and worry. Somebody says, well, have you prayed about it? And we're like, <clears throat> kind of, <laughs> you know? And it's a rebuke. Because here we are trying to figure everything out and we really haven't done the first thing God has called us to do. In fact, he's invited us to do it. He's welcoming us to do it. He wants to meet our needs. He wants, he, he wants us to cry to him. He loves it when we, we come to him. Paul says in Philippians 4, we shouldn't be anxious about anything, but about everything we need to take our request to God and find peace. But hold on a minute. We're talking about a deviant devotion here. The implication in context is that we're desiring something we shouldn't be desiring. Or we want it in the wrong way. Or we want it at the wrong time. So why would we take these sinful desires to God and pray about them? Bingo. If you have a strong desire that does not seem appropriate to ask God for, Maybe it's an indication that it is not a good desire, but a desire that arises from a deviant devotion. Because you know what prayer does? It has a way of changing us. God promises to give us the desires of our hearts when we delight in him. Psalm 37, 4. When we draw near to him, as James will say later on in the text. But when we are truly seeking God, when we are devoted to him as we should be, our desires become more aligned with his desire for us. If we are not talking to God about it, it may indicate that what we want is more important to us than our delighting in him and seeking him. And God may be purposely keeping us from what we sinfully desire. It may be an act of his grace that he's not giving us this. Thus, the path of our devotion has deviated 
from God. But there's another more hideous manifestation of a deviant devotion with respect to God in verse 3. Notice what he says here. He says, if you have a deviant devotion, even when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, it might not seem so because of the verbiage, but really, in my estimation, this is the worst thing he said yet that we might do. Here is a believer so blinded by a wrong desire that he is not only willing to manipulate others to get it, he is also willing to try to manipulate God to get what he wants so that he can literally, as it says in the Greek text, spend it freely on his passions. The word passions is the same that we see back in verse 1. This hedonistic, pleasure-seeking passion that wars within us, wanting to conquer, zealously yearning for fulfillment. Now think carefully about this. James is describing a believer whose devotion is so deviant that he goes to the throne of grace in prayer, which is an activity in which we are instructed to magnify our Creator and ask for His will as our highest priority and draw close to Him. And yet, this person uses God merely as some kind of divine dispenser for his own worldly, lustful pleasure. In other words, he's taking an activity God has graciously given to us to exalt him and and to bless his people and turning it as a way to exalt himself. This is the essence of idolatry. This is the height of a deviant devotion. It's a betrayal of our devotion to God. It's an act of unfaithfulness. No wonder the next word from James Penn is simply adulteresses. And I'll tell you what this means for us this morning as we come to the end of this first big idea in the text. It means we need to examine our loves and be honest with ourselves. What are we really devoted to? What actually motivates us? Is it really God's will? His highest glory? Can we pray daily as Jesus taught us, your will be done on earth, including in my life, as it is in heaven? It means for some of us that we need to confess our wrong attitudes and even perhaps meanness or fighting between ourselves and another brother or sister and make sure that relationship is healed and ask God by his grace to give us more love for our family members in Christ. More love for them than we have for our earthly desires. It means we need to spend time asking God for what we want, but asking in a way that exalts his will and asking in a way where we are willing to change our desires if that is what God wants. You see, we will always be plagued by wrong desires. Do you realize that? Wrong desires are not going to go away. We're always going to have them. The temptation to go after a deviant devotion, it's always going to be there until we're with Christ in glory. We, won't even, we don't even know what that's like, not having deviant desires, deviant devotions. But right now we're going to have them. What keeps us on the path of wisdom is that God and his will and others are our highest devotion our highest commitment. We only have room to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength a certain number of things. It needs to be what God points us to to love so that we don't have room for anything else. 
And we already have the grace promised to us through Christ to devote our hearts to what is right and good and true. He promised he's going to do this for us. He's going to make it possible. So let's examine our lives. Let's examine our loves. And let's commit ourselves to loving what God wants us to love. This is what it means to live up to our faith. Father, thank you.